You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back all of our participants here at the... Sunday Gospel Reflection. Sunday Gospel Reflection. Annie, I got to tell you, I almost said Sunrise Morning Show. <laughs> oh, reflection. well. There's a free plug. If you guys don't know about Sunrise Morning Show and Annie Mitchell's good work uh, on uh, EWTN Radio out of Cincinnati. Well, it's not really EWTN Radio. It's it's out uh, of Cincinnati on EWTN Radio. That's yeah. right. No, it's Anyways, both. It's both. Work. And we do this on a much shorter or much smaller scale on the Sunrise Morning and, Show. And, and Annie, can people tune in like like online to the Sunrise Morning oh, Show? Yeah. Absolutely. Go to sacredheartradio.com and you can download an app for your smartphone and listen live or just listen live on the website. So when the ICC isn't on, my brothers and sisters, Sunrise Morning Show. There you go. Let's jump into it. Sunday Gospel Reflections here at the ICC, 21st Sunday in Ordinary Time. And first reading. Here we are. Here we are. Is from Isaiah chapter 22, verses 19 through 23. The responsorial psalm is taken from Psalm 138, the gospel Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, and the epistle is Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. There we have it. There we have it. So you got those written down. Get out your Bibles. Time to jump in for our dive, you know, the old swan dive into uh, our lecture. I hope these guys, guys, I hope these are helpful to you. I hope that you know, if you're jumping in here and doing these studies with us, if you want to send us an email, let us know what you think. Any way we might improve, any way, anything you'd like us to do differently here uh, at Sunday Gospel Reflection to help you, whether you're a deacon. I know there's a lot of deacons and priests that watch these Sunday Gospel Reflections to get some maybe some new ideas and things for your homilies, whatever, whatever. We're here to help you. So if you want to email us at info at institute of Catholic culture.org, info at institute of Catholic culture.org, feel free. If you just like what we're doing, enjoy it every week. We'd love to hear from you and how it's made an impact in your spiritual life and your preparation for your Sunday worship. We certainly would appreciate that. But for now, let's jump into Isaiah chapter 22, verses 19 through 23. Isaiah 22, verses 19 through 23. And while you're looking there, I'll say one last thing as an opening comment, and that is, if you do like these Sunday Gospel Reflections, and you like the Institute of Catholic Culture in general, what we're doing for the formation of the laity, I ask you for your support. While we give all of this away for free, it costs us a tremendous amount of money to pay all of our staffing, to pay for all of the technology, for Zoom, for the video cameras, for the computers that run all of this. All of this business is in need of support. And if you believe in what we're doing, then I'd ask you to stand with us. You can go to our donation page and make a monthly gift. I encourage you to do that, to make a commitment with us, because we make a commitment here to be here every week for you. Make a commitment to be with us, to support this mission here at the Institute of Catholic Culture and not stand on the sideline and just be a user, but a participant in this mission, okay? Absolutely. So here we are, Isaiah chapter 22, verses 19 through 23. Annie, go ahead. And I would just like to say, I do not come cheap. Let me tell you, Annie Mitchell <laughs> definitely doesn't come cheap, but she's worth All right. every penny. Worth every penny for how I'm about no, to read Isaiah. It's true. It's true. And then most people, I think they see us doing this, Annie, and like, oh, just nice people, you know, we, we are nice people. But, you know, Annie's got a family that she's got to provide for as her husband also. And I've got a family. I'm a married priest. I have a provide for my family. So all of the work we do to support this, all of our staffing, the editing afterwards, you watch it on demand. And it, you know, you'll see some chops here and there. You'll see some, you know, 
uh, graphics go up. That's all work that's being done by our staff behind the scene to make it all happen to support our website where this gets hosted and things like that. So really your support is, is very much appreciated, but let's jump into this. Isaiah yes, chapter 22, verse Poor 19. Isaiah, poor Isaiah, poor yeah. Shebna. Okay, here we go. Yeah, poor Shebna. Well, not poor Shebna. <laughs> not the poor Shebna. I guess we're going to find out here in just yeah, exactly. a second. Okay. All right, here we go. Thus says the Lord to Shebna, master of the palace, I will thrust you from your office and pull you down from your station. Nice reading there, Annie. Yeah, thrust. Thank go ahead. You. On that day. On that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and gird him with your sash and give over to him your authority. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place the key of the house of David on Eliakim's shoulder. When he opens, no one shall shut. When he shuts, no one shall open. I will fix him like a peg in a sure spot to be a place of honor for his family. Hmm. Okay, wow. This is quite a reading. So, so what is it, what's, it, what's it remind you of, Annie? What Peter. is this reading immediately? All you Roman Catholics, all everybody. Oh, yeah, definitely. Peter, absolutely. Right, the, the, the keys and the keys business the and they get shut and open and all this business. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You're thinking Matthew chapter 16, 18, which is why we get Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 in our readings today, but we're going to now expand this because for the most of our participants today, I think, first of all, you might be surprised that this language is used in the Old Testament. So what's that help us understand? That Christ is working within a context, a framework. So his words, as we talk about so often, his words, if they're not understood within that context, then they're just kind of words, right? Like they're yeah. nice words. And like, he's really likes Peter, right? Because <laughs> Peter, you're going to be the rock. That's really great. You know, and <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, all this stuff and, you know, you have all these powers. Great. No, but, but it's, it's within a context. Now it's context is the kingdom of David. It's the kingdom of the old Testament that we have to understand Christ's work because Christ is not coming to invent something new, but to restore that, which was lost. Yes. Yeah. Lost yeah. at the Babylonian exile lost at the, at the fall of our first parents. And so there's your greater context, but Annie, go ahead. You've got questions. Awesome. Okay. Well, Get us up to speed on on what is happening in Isaiah here. I mean, who is Shebna and what in the world did he do? Yeah, so so good. So we're gonna have to go back as usual to well, well, we just again look at chapter one, verse one to know where we're at, right? We're in the time with the time of the kings, we're in the time just after the attack of the Assyrian empire now remember the assyrians attack the north the northern 10 tribes if you're brand new to the icc we're not doing that right now but for those that have been on for a while the assyrians attack the northern 10 tribes right the the holy lands divided into 12 the the kingdom splits okay and then the northern 10 tribes form their own their own kingdom around the city of samaria and the northern tribe of judah and benjamin are left faithful to the throne. The southern uh, they, tribe, yeah. So in the south, right, exactly. Yeah. So now the Assyrians have come down, and, it, and by the time of Isaiah chapter 22, the Assyrians have conquered the north, okay? Now, how do I know that? Well, because I have a trusty tool that you should have in your, in your library, and I've got my copy over there, but I've got more than one copy, so I'm just going to grab another copy over here, and that is a concordance. The concordance is very helpful. If you don't own a concordance, you're going to want to have one if you're into Bible study and not just listening to Father Hezekiah's flap his gums. So what is a concordance? Well, there are two kinds of concordance. There's a phrase concordance or a theme concordance in which you can take similar phrases or themes and find them in a place of the Bible. The most helpful concordance, the most scholarly concordance, I would say, is a word concordance. And that is that if you've come across a word and, or a name in the Bible and you want to know the first time it was used or all the times it was used, you're going to go to the concordance, right? So I'm just nice. going to open up yeah. here to the word leave. They've got the word leave. Every time the word wow. leave is in the Bible, it's listed here. So you got like, look at that. Okay. Oh gosh, and so wow. every single reference. And so I'm going to go grab, we're going to do an edit chop, boom. Okay. Here is the concordance that I was using today. 
as a very nice little concordance put out by Emmaus Road Publishing because it's an RSV concordance, which means it's going to have the same. If you use an RSV Bible, which most of you do, the Catholic Revised Standard Edition, this is going to be your exact concordance for it. It's a little bit clunky and big, but if you're just using it at your desk, it's fine. Anyways, but uh, there it is. And you can look up Shebna. Shebna. Because you jump into the middle of Isaiah, and if you did what I did, you say, who's Shebna? Who's Shebna? <laughs> I can't exactly. remember. And I've got this thing highlighted you know, all over the place here because obviously a reference to Matthew 16, 18. But for me, I want to go back and say, what's going on with Shebna, right? What's yeah. the story here? And he's mentioned a number of times back in 2 Kings chapter 18 hmm. in that area. So you're going to find him there in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. And I'm just going to give you a little context here, because in chapter 18, you'll see that the great and holy and sinless King Hezekiah came to the throne. And King Hezekiah is a reformer. He's one of the, one of the few good kings of the Old Testament. And he, well, forms the pool of Siloam, and makes the, the, the tunnel of Hezekiah, which rerouted the spring of Gihon. If you've ever been to the Holy Land with me, we walked through that, that tunnel. If you've gone with other groups, you probably didn't. But with me, I take you to the King Hezekiah's tunnel, in which when the Assyrians army attacked, he rerouted the spring so as to keep the fresh water for God's people and not give it to the, to the, to the heathen. And so, and so you'll see, just look at 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13. In the 14th year, okay, well, I'm going to go back actually to verse, verse 9, verse 9, 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 9, in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that's the northern ten tribes, right. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria, those, again, the northern ten tribes, besieged it, and at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which is the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Boom. The northern ten tribes fall. And then verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah. That's the, north, the south. And they mm -hmm. took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria, da-da-da-da-da. He ends up, he ends up in a confrontation there and you'll see that his representatives i'm going to come down to verse 17 the king of assyria sent the tartan the rob saris of so so with a great army to lachish to king hezekiah at jerusalem and they went and came to jerusalem when they arrived they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool so they're Every time you see Hezekiah's round, water shows up. Okay, he's got the pool. They got the upper conduit and all this business, yeah. which is in the highway of the Fuller's Field. And when they came, when they when they called for the king, there came out to him Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the house. Over the house. Hold on to that phrase. And Shebna, the secretary. Hmm. Interesting. Now. So these are the representatives of the king of Judah go out to meet these guys and they confront him and they and basically they say, we're not going to just fold to you guys. And they're going to stand and they've got guys on the walls of Jerusalem and so forth. And the rest of that chapter unfolds. You can read it for yourself. I pointed it out to you because in 2 Kings chapter 18, we meet Shebna in 2 Kings, which is our historical book, Isaiah being the prophet book. We meet in Second Kings for the first time, but notice what position he's holding. Secretary. Secretary not, he's not over the house. Right. Now, coming back then to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 15. Isaiah 22, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, come to this steward, to Shebna, who is over. Sorry, oh, Annie, you got to be I on the ball. I was flipping. I was in Isaiah one. That was where my finger was. So I was okay. flipping to 22. I'm sorry. That's all right. That's all right. I, okay. So anyways, there you go. Come to the steward, the Shebna, who is 
over the house, right? This is Isaiah 22, verse 15. So this is, this is, you're going to hold your hand there now and come back to Genesis chapter 41, Genesis chapter 41. This is, of of course, Joseph in Egypt during, you know, the the exile in Egypt just before the Exodus. And notice when Joseph rises up and becomes powerful in the Mm -hmm. house of Pharaoh, verse 39. So chapter 41, verse 39. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discreet and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. house. See that? Yeah. Okay. And all my people shall order themselves at your command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So, okay. I bring this up to show you the point is that this phrase over the house is a Hebrew idiom. It's a, it's actually the name of an office to be over the house. Every king had his key bearer, the guy who carried the key on his shoulder and had the authority to open the kingdom. That is literally open the gates of the throne city and close them. And in this, this act, there was much significance because he protected the king and the kingdom by having the key, by closing the gates at night. And he also opened the, the kingdom. He allowed those in and out and so forth, right? This is the guy who is the albayit, the key bearer in the ancient world. And it was known not only among the Hebrews, but also among the Egyptians and another, and it was an, it's a, this is a position. It's the vice president, if you will, or I don't know what kind of modern American guy. Chief I don't really staff, maybe chief of staff, whatever it is. He's the guy. Okay. Yeah. He's the chief of staff. And so now we can come back knowing this to Isaiah, because without knowing that your reference is simply to Peter, which is fine, except it's a little flimsy. If you don't get that foundation, because you won't know why Jesus says what he says to Peter, which we're going to look at in just a minute. But now we go back to verse 15 and we say, what in the world's wrong with this Albaid? Yeah. What's wrong with this guy who was over the house, who was the key bearer? Yeah. In those days, the key wasn't like, you know, I got some keys over here. So use the little key and I go to. I was like picturing like this little, you know. This is a wow. big old, mostly it was a wooden key. They wow. put it into the big old thing and they would turn the, the post that would go down and hook into the ground and. The gates would close and boom, nobody could get in, right? This, by the way, on a completely side note, is why they had the eye of the needle, a hole in the side of the gate in which a man could climb through as long as he left everything he had on the outside so as to save his life to get inside in case the gates were closed in the evening, he would get robbed out there and die or he'd come inside as long as he was willing to divest himself of everything, including any sort of thing to conquer the city with, right? Any swords and you know yeah. guns and cannons and stuff. nothing that swords again but you know what i mean well they had swords yeah. but okay you get my point that's what that was all about back to our point about shebna and what happened well what happened was in verse 22 chapter 22 knowing this history right the assyrians come down conquer the north and now they're marching on judah they're conquering all of the whatever fortified places and now they're heading towards Jerusalem. Now that we can look at chapter 22 and we can come down for sake of time to verse eight, uh, verse nine. In that day, you see that in that day, you looked up to the weapons of the house of the forest. Yes. You see that? Yeah. And you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. And you collected the waters of the lower pool hello hezekiah and you counted the houses of jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the walls why do they have to fortify the walls and why are they concerned about breaches in the in the city of david where the lower part of jerusalem and the knoll of the city of david where that's where they that's where the conquering would take place that they were going to conquer the city. they had to go that up this this through this area Okay, this is how David had conquered Jerusalem in the beginning. That he'd come up through the water shaft. And so they were concerned about these breaches in the wall, these, these places where the soldiers could get through. And then, and, and you counted the house of Jerusalem. You broke down the houses to fortify the walls. You made a reservoir between the two walls of the, for the water of the old pool. But you did not 
Look to him who did it. Okay, now, well, who did it? Who did all this work? The king. Yeah. And Shebna, who's supposed to be his right-hand man, is not following the directions of his king. Mm. And so you did not look to him who did it or have regard to him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called to weeping and mourning, to baldness and girding within sackcloth. Now, I had to read this twice. And when he's saying he's calling out to those. In that day, the Lord of hosts called out to those who are weeping. Right? Why? Because the houses are being broken down. They're all concerned about they're all going to die. Um, and, and hold on to this. We have one. Okay, I apologize. You had to get one more little context. And that's back in 2 Kings. So hold your Bible right there. Go back to 2 Kings. I, I wasn't going to, I, I, I had read this earlier today, and this is actually pretty cool stuff. 2 Kings chapter 18. Well, it's actually kind of disgusting, but it's, it gives you, it helps you understand. Because as these guys come and they meet Hezekiah's reps at the, at the, at Jerusalem outside the walls, and they look up and there's guys up on the walls protecting the city. And then, they start yelling at them, okay? It's right here, verse 27, chapter 18, verse 27. But but Rob Sheke, I don't know how to pronounce his name, and said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall? Because what happens is the the, rep, the representative, Eliakim and, and Shebna and these guys are like, talk just directly to us in and not to the guys on the walls just talk to us because they don't want them to lose hope okay yeah and he said and so these guys say have we come to talk to you and your king and not to them on the wall and now they start shouting up to them on the wall but watch what they say has my master sent me to speak these words to you and your master and you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine okay now you're like oh guys that's gross you have to understand what the siege looks like these guys are trapped in the city and they are going to not only do this, it's going to get worse, not with the Assyrians, because the Assyrians are going to get repulsed, but when the Babylonians come down. But, but here's, there, there's, your, there's what's going on. And in that, in that context now, uh, we have verse 12 of Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22, verse 12. And I am getting to this point, Annie. I know I'm belaboring it, but it's really worth it. In that day, the Lord of hosts called to weeping and mourning, to baldness and gird and girding with sackcloth. So to all those people that are repenting, saying, hey, you guys. And what does he find in Jerusalem? And behold, he sees joy and gladness, the slaying of oxen, the killing of sheep, the eating of flesh, the drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So the Lord comes to them, and what does he see? Instead of repentance, he sees them throwing a bachelor party on the top of the walls. Everybody's eating and drinking and making merry instead of praying to God and repenting. And the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be forgiven you till you die, says the Lord of hosts. Thus, Shebna. You who should have been watching out over the city. And instead you were eating and drinking and making merry. You who should have been praying in the temple of God like Hezekiah goes and does. You're out of here. Thrust him out of the, the, of the, of the position of being the, over the house. And he puts another man in his place, Eliakim. Now, it appears as though from 2 Kings that Shebna, while he's thrown out of his position, worms his way back in. And now she becomes a secretary rather than being the Albayit. Okay? But there it is. And, uh, of course, verse 22 is the verse that they want everybody's focused on, right? And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Bingo. But I will fasten him like a peg in a sure place and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house and they will hang on him the whole weight of his father's house. The offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In in that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a sure place will give way and it will be cut down 
and fall and the burden that was upon it will be cut off. The Lord has spoken. So while it sounds pressure. Really, really great for Eliakim, the end of this prophecy doesn't look so good. Yeah. Because while Eliakim is in a sure place, guess what's going to happen? It's not going to go well in the end, in the end. But for now, so here's it. Here's this office. Here's this place. Here's this guy. Here's the backstory. Here's the context. Now, I hope my brothers and sisters, Sunday Gospel Reflection, this is what we do at the ICC, right? Yeah, I mean. Take that bigger picture. Yes. I mean, I guess the gates of hell do prevail against Eliakim. Well, they sure can. Yeah. Sure can. Because Eliakim's place, just like Shebna's place, is sure. As long as the person holding that office is sure about the Lord. Yes. And the person who holds that office doesn't hold it by magic. He doesn't hold it because he deserves it. He has that position because he has a responsibility that's been given to him. And that responsibility is protect the house of God from the enemy who is assailing it. And should he not do that, then may the prophecy of Isaiah come upon him and may he be thrust from his position and another put in his place. Because oh, that's that what's happened know. in the past. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Well, you know, you went through all of my questions i think just uh so, so we kind of systematically went through everything i was going to ask without even having to ask it so let's look at at psalm 138 lord your love is eternal do not forsake the work of your hands i will give thanks to you lord with all my heart for you have heard the words of my mouth in the presence of the angels i will sing your praise i will worship at your holy temple, I will give thanks to your name because of your kindness and your truth. When I called, you answered me. You built up strength within me. The Lord is exalted, yet the lowly he sees and the proud he knows from afar. Your kindness, O Lord, endures forever. Forsake not the work of your hand. St. Augustine says he dwells on high, but he looks on the lowly. The Lord is near. To whom? Perhaps to the high, to those who are contrite of heart. It is a wondrous thing. He both lives on high and draws near to the lowly. He looks to the lowly, but the high he knows from afar. He sees the proud from afar. The higher they seem to themselves, so much of the less does he approach them. Yeah, hmm. um, It's kind of haunting words for some who would make themselves great upon the earth. But, uh, but here we are in Matthew chapter 16. Verse 13, Annie, which is, we've been waiting many moons to come to this point. I will say, before we take a look at it, that we did talk about this passage to some, yeah. in some, to some extent over the past few weeks, as well as during our one-hour Bible study on the transfiguration of the Lord, which is now posted on the ICC website. So maybe we don't have to spend as much time here as we otherwise would, but let's go ahead and read this together. Matthew chapter 16. Starting with verse 13. There you go. Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly ordered his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. There you go. 
So uh, again, context. Well, Annie, I took all your questions away last time. Let's talk about, let me let you ask questions. I got a lot to say about this passage, but go ahead. All right. Well, Father, let's get some context first here, because uh, the last thing that we read last week, let me look back here, was uh, Matthew chapter 15 and ended on verse 28. So that was um, the the Canaanite woman, the dog, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, and now we're into um, verse 16, verse 13. So what have we, have we missed anything significant here in uh, skipping over? Okay. Well, well, I mean, yes, of course. I mean, this, 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 there's the fight going on, and the fight just keeps going. So Jesus goes up to Tyre and Sidon. He heals the the possessed daughter of this woman, and that we looked at in chapter 15, verses 21 and following, and so forth. And look at verse 29, 15, 29. Jesus went on from there and passed along the Sea of Galilee. He comes down. So he leaves Tyre inside and he comes down and he goes over to Philip's side because things are too hot with, with the Herodians, with one Herod. So he comes down the eastern side and multiplies the loaves and fishes a second time. Okay, and that's mm-hmm. what we get here. But notice what he says in verse, 20, in verse 30. And great crowds came to him. This is chapter 15, verse 30. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the maimed, the blind, the dumb, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the throng wondered when they saw the dumb speaking, and the maimed whole, the lame walking, the blind seen, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days. Okay, now he's going to multiply the seven loaves, right? So before we had five loaves and two fishes, now he's at seven loaves and so forth. And uh, and and there, and then he feeds the 4,000. So this is verse 38. Now chapter 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and, and to test him and they asked him, to show them a sign from heaven. <laughs> what? So, so yeah. So they're, they, they, they themselves aren't there. You can see where they're at, right? Jesus has been doing all this stuff. They're unable to see what's taking place. And as we were talking about in our Bible study in the transfiguration, the theme of the kingdom of heaven is all over the place, especially starting way back in chapter four, chapter four, verse 17. Matthew chapter four, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we talked about this in our Bible study. It's here throughout the gospel of Matthew, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, the parables, kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is healing. And then they say, show us a sign from heaven. Okay. And so they've become, they themselves have become the blind, the lame, the dumb, and so forth. Um, and, uh, and then how does Jesus respond? He answered them. This is verse two. So chapter 16, verse two, he answered them. When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather. The sky is red in the morning. It, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times, okay? Mm. And so now remember, Jesus is now going to give a big time sign, but he's not going to give it to these guys anymore. He's going to give it to his closest disciples who are going to answer his questions in our gospel text about the son of man. He's going to go up on Mount Tabor, as we talked about before, and he's going to go stand on the clouds of heaven, fulfilling Daniel chapter seven. Right? He's going to give the greatest sign of all of who he is, right? So they are, they are, um, um, and then, well, and then verse four, I can't skip that. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Of course, what's the sign of Jonah? He's going to go down into the waters, the water being the symbolic tomb for the Jews because of the crossing of the Red Sea, of course. Right, uh-huh. the time of, and the, the 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 flood of Noah, of course, right. um, and uh, and the and well, and the fact that the Jews were not seagoing peoples. Okay, the waters become a symbol of death in the tomb. Jonah goes and throws himself into the water. Okay, and ends up because he's why because he's fleeing from God. 
He's, he's a man of sin. He goes in the water. How many days is he, is he buried under the waters and then swallowed by the big fish? Three days. And after three days, he comes forth from death. Man restored in the image and likeness of God. He's a, a sign, a shadow, a, a prefigurement of Christ himself. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm not giving you people any more signs of who I am. The only sign I'm going to give you is when you kill me, I'm going to do what Jonah did. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, uh, oh, I'm going to pull up on the screen right here for you an icon of this exact, of this exact event of, of Jonah going down into the belly of the, of the fish for three days and then coming forth like Christ. Yeah. Out of, out of the tomb. Okay. So now with that context, we can go down to verse 13 and take a look at our passage, Annie. Um, yeah. You have particular questions about it. Well, I'm wondering, first of all, where uh, Caesarea Philippi is. Okay, Caesarea Philippi is up north. We can pull up a map here. You can see the, the site. Uh, many, many pilgrims go there. I don't take my pilgrims there um, only because the site that you go walk to is actually the pagan temple. And no okay, doubt great. Jesus would never have gone there. It was a place of pagan worship in which um, in which babies were sacrificed by being thrown into the into the the mouth of this of the waters of the of the of the river. That's the headwaters of the Jordan River. If they saw blood coming out from below this this rock face, they would say that this that the their their God accepted the sacrifice of this of these children. Nevertheless, it is most likely where Jesus went, not to the place where they take pilgrims today, but across the hill, um, there is an undeveloped site. And it is a site of an ancient Byzantine monastery um, in which uh, I believe that is where Jesus would have taken his, uh, his apostles. Hmm. And um, it is called the, the, the mouth of Hades. Okay, this, this, this spot where they would throw yeah. these the mouth of Hades, right? Wow. Um, and Jesus most likely would take him to the opposite hill. So he would never gone to the pagan site, right? And they would right. have seen it from afar. Yeah, hmm. this, this caps, this mouth of Hades. Yeah, and they start huh. talking about this capstone. Now, this is very important because now we got to realize that Jesus is talking more about this location at Caesarea Philippi because the, um, there, there is another place um, in which the Jews would have talked about this capstone to the gates of Hades, and that's in Jerusalem itself. We all know of the Dome of the Rock, and I'll bring this up here on the screen. You can see the Dome of the Rock, a famous shrine, a Muslim shrine that's built over the, the rock. Now, the rock, of course, is the Rock of Moriah, the original location that David built the temple. It's the Temple Mount, the top of the Temple Mount, that uh, the Western Wall or the Jews go and pray today um is there and then the temple mounts above and the dome of the rock and inside that dome of the rock is the rock of moriah and that rock of moriah was where david built the temple but it is also um by, believed to be by the jews believed to be the place of the original place of the creation of adam the mm. place where abraham was to sacrifice isaac mm -hmm. it is believed to be the capstone of the gate uh, of hades and they, wow. the Jews believe as long as that rock remains in place, that hell will not be released upon the earth. In fact, there's a there's an old Jewish uh, Hebrew um, uh, midrash that I have a, uh, share with you because very very beautiful, very powerful. Um, this rock, also known as the foundation stone. Uh, this is I'm quoting an author here. This rock, also known as a, as the foundation stone, holds a special place in Jewish tradition. It is upon this rock that the waters first parted at creation to bring forth the land. It is upon this rock that man was first created in the garden. It is upon this rock that Solomon built the temple. It is from this rock that the prayers and sacrifices go up to heaven. And it is this rock which is the caps from the gates of Hades. And here's the here's the uh, the Hebrew text. What did the Holy One, blessed be He, do? Like a man setting in place the central pole of a tent, he raised his right foot and drove the stone down into the very bottom of the deeps and made it the pillar of the earth. Therefore, it is called the spindle stone, for it is the very navel of the earth from which the whole earth is stretched out. And upon the, this stone is the house of the Lord. Okay. Wow. Now, why am I sharing all of that with you? Because I've talked about Daniel 7 a couple of weeks ago. 
we've talked about the importance of this conversation between Peter and the Lord about who they're saying he is, but we really haven't talked a lot about Jesus. Well, we did in our study about Jesus as the Messiah, as the King, the anointed one, right? And as the anointed one, as the King, as the son of David, he is to do what David's son did. What's a great thing that David's son did? He built the temple in Jerusalem upon this rock. Of course, Jesus has come to build not only a temple built out of wood and rocks, out of dead things, but out of living stones, yeah, out of you and I. And therefore, the capstone of the gates of Hades, right, the one who builds upon the rock is going to build not upon the rock of Moriah, but upon the living foundation stone, the living rock, of course. Now, who is the, who is the cornerstone of the church? Who is the foundation stone of the church? It is Jesus, of course. Jesus. Yeah. Right. But of course, Jesus is, 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 is love. He is love and he shares his life with us. And therefore who he is becomes incarnate in us. We are his right. hands and feet, and eyes and ears. And he uses this moment to incorporate Peter deeply into he, who, who he is upon which the te living temple of the living God is going to be built. He is also the temple, of course, right? He is the foundation and the temple. We are going to be incorporated into him. And Peter, in a special way, is going to be given this gift. Yeah. Some people would say, oh, when Jesus calls Peter, Peter, he's not really calling him the rock. He's not really. Da, da, da. Well, this is nonsense according from a biblical standpoint. Okay. Um, the word Peter or Petros from the, from the Greek literally is rock. Well, the Greek word for rock is Petra. And but it comes into the Peter's name comes into to Greek as Petros for a very important reason because Jesus of course was speaking Aramaic and Matthew most likely was writing originally in Hebrew, and the Hebrew word for rock is Kepha. You get this at the beginning of the Gospel of John, if you will, if you want to turn there very quickly with me, John chapter uh, one, chapter one, verse. 41 verse 42 he brought him to jesus and jesus looked at him and said you are simon the son of jonah you shall be called cephas this is a greek transliteration transliteration is when you take a word in one language and you just kind of morph it over into the next language okay sure. and you kind of keep the same sounds so kepha in 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 greek becomes cephas with an S on the end of it, because when a, a in, in Hebrew, a male can have a, a, an ah sounding ending, Jonah, okay, sure, Hezekiah. But when that when that name comes into Greek, in Greek, whatever gram, grammatical rules, a man must have a male ending to his name, and therefore they have to put an S on it. So Kepha becomes Cephas, but when that when Cephas is translated, not transliterated, the meaning the meaning of the word is given, then we call that same Cephas guy Petros, mm -hmm. right? Which is the male ending of the feminine ending of the rock word for rock in Greek, which is Petra, but you couldn't call him Petra in right. Greek. Yes. And exactly. when Petros is transliterated, not translated, but transliterated into English, keeping the same sounds, then we have Peter, Peter. Petros, Peter. But when Petros is translated as to mean into English, then we have the word rock. Thou art, this is really bad of the RSV to done this to us. It shouldn't read like that. Right in, in verse 18, I tell you, you are rock. Mm -hmm. And upon this rock, I will build my church, my temple, as the son of David built his temple. Yes. Mm -hmm. And just as the wise man builds upon the rock and not upon the sand, we've heard this Jesus speaking of this. Who is the wise man who builds on the rock? It's Solomon. He builds on the, the rock, the rock of Moriah. The rock. That's right. the rock, yeah. yes? And so Jesus, being the Son of David, is going to do the same thing, right? And that rock is going to be the living capstone to the gates of Hades. Yes? Super cool. 
And um, I will what? give you the keys. I'm going to go one step further because now we have two things diverging, the albait, the key bearer, and the rock, right? Jesus is bringing both of these things together now, and he makes them the over the household, right? Mm -hmm. I give you the keys, the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of David, the kingdom of heaven, which is the same reality now come to fruition. Um, and whatever you bind or should be bound in heaven, whatever you loosen or should be loosed in heaven, right? And so forth like that, right? The power, I'm sorry, one verse right above it, the, I will build upon the rock, I will build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. That is a direct reference to the rock of Moriah. Wow. Okay. Okay. That's all a bunch of, a lot of stuff there, but I hope it's helpful. It's incredible. But it's all because Jesus is the Christ. It's all because Peter says you are the Christ. This is the key you have to get across to yourselves. Well, we, we get very excited about Peter and about the rock and about all this stuff, about the key bear and all this stuff. It's all because Jesus is the Christ. Exactly. Our biblical reading must be Christocentric about the kingdom of heaven and the one who is upon the throne. And only then can all of this then be revealed to us. And we can then see Jesus for who he is at the transfiguration, riding on the clouds of heaven. And the father speaking, this is my beloved son, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Go. Mm -hmm. Not, I mean, don't go there, but there. Yes. Well, father, what does it mean to bind and loose? Well, I mean, traditionally, this has been understood in terms of uh, of holy confession. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, when Jesus is talking to all of the apostles, mm -hmm. he says, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, wherever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's speaking to all the apostles there. So this is, this is a, a, a gift of traditionally understood as regarding holy confession, that when, when a penitent comes and confesses their sins, that that the apostles are being given this gift of forgiveness, that they are that they have a ministry of forgiveness, yes, which is then extends into the church uh, among the priests who are ordained by the bishops. So I would just say this is everything. Again, I'll go back. Everything that is said about Peter, everything that is said about the apostles, everything that is said about a Christian is true because it is first true about God. And if we have that principle in place, then we can read all of these things as an unfolding, as a revealing of the truth, of the divine truth about God. It is, is, is the Lord who, who binds and looses, right? It is, it is the Lord who is the foundation. It is the Lord who is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we now, by baptism, are incorporated into him. The sacraments are all about that reality, incorporation. So ordination is all about that. Marriage is all about that. Baptism is all about that. Chrism is all about that. Confession is all about that. Incorporation into who and what Christ is so that we can be the body of Christ on earth, that we can be revelatory, which is the purpose of the church, to reveal the glory of God. Yeah? Right. Okay. And, and well, um, yeah. It's a beautiful point because there are a lot of non-Catholics who think that catholics just do whatever because that's what the pope says you know like they have this idea that it's like the pope speaks and it oh and that's what it is right. and that's just not the case i mean the pope is receiving truth from the lord and then you know right? i i recently i recently was spoken speaking with somebody and they said you know father you you say you're a traditionalist i'm not a traditionalist i said well that's unfortunate because as christians we are by nature traditionalists, by nature traditionalists, which is why St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold fast, hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. Hmm. Why? Because, because this entire created order is given to us by God. Everything we have is a gift. We receive it as a gift. And then we are in the, in the, in the, uh, the, the gifted position to then hand that gift on to others. That, that's what tradition is. That I am not the inventor of things because I'm not God. I receive what has been handed down to me from the apostles. 
because they have handed down what they received from Christ. Yeah, St. Paul says this perfectly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if I'm not mistaken, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Well, I mean, there's many times, but look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I have delivered them to you. Mm -hmm. Now, in order to understand that, you have to go up to verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You see that? So see, you do what I tell you to do because I got, I received this from Jesus. Yeah. So we are all ministers. We are all traditionalists. We're all handers honors of the gift. Yes. And to the extent that I am willing to humble myself to this reality, then God will entrust me with the gift. Yeah. But to the extent that I want to make a God of my own making, then I think Isaiah 22 stands as a warning to all of us. We are Christians by gift, not by right. And we, the Christians, the bishops, the, sorry, the priests, the bishops, the deacons, the Pope himself, is a servant of that gift. And to the extent that we are willing to humble ourselves and be servants to it, whether I particularly like it or not, whether I've conformed my taste to it or not, I've still been called into this ministry. And we are called to humble ourselves to that ministry, to be the servants of the servants of God, right? That's a title of the Pope. Why don't we read uh, from Romans chapter 11? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments and how unsearchable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given the Lord anything that he may be repaid for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. I think this is perfect, perfect ending to our Bible study. Let St. Paul's words ring in our ears. You don't, you don't get it. You don't understand why the church teaches what she teaches. You don't understand why her traditions are the way they are. That's okay. Because you're not the inventor of them. You are to receive the gift of God, conform your life to it. And only then will you tr find true freedom, true peace, and true joy. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and to ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.